At the peak of September, almost 200,000 Americans were on strike. Isn't that incredible? 200,000 Americans were on strike. And why? And why? When I started doing research into it, there's only 6% of privatized professionals who are unionized. That's interesting. 6%. That's much smaller than I would have It's expected. a tiny amount. Yeah. And yet we are seeing inside that 6%, they have the ability to make massive impact. Whether it's Amazon or the entire scripted world in Hollywood, they've been brought to their knees essentially because of union strikes. So we've been putting a lot of effort recently into structuring and preparing our business mm -hmm. for the next year. Yeah. And really, this is the first time that we've really focused on not just the next year, but like we're looking at the next potentially 10 years. We're setting like one-year yeah. goals, three-year goals, and 10-year goals. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, an exciting, yeah. super nerdy experience for me to be doing all of this planning. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of that has been like defining core values, defining mm -hmm. our purpose, our mm -hmm. core purpose, our core vision, and it's daunting. Like it's really actually daunting to be doing that kind of heavy lifting yeah. for what was originally a small business. Because I'm realizing that our 10-year goal is to have this small business actually be a large business. Yeah. I mean, I, I am so stoked because all the process stuff we've been doing lately is right in my wheelhouse. The, the way that entrepreneurial businesses begin where it's just everything's on fire and going and moving <laughs> and like you're, you know, throwing spaghetti against the wall, yeah. seeing what sticks. All of that is completely anti the way GE works. Yeah. Anti-GE. I would <laughs> anti -GE. agree. Anti-GE. It makes me 100% nuts. So now that we are like defining core values, defining core purpose, putting processes in place, um, you know, to really ultimately better serve those that we are trying to serve. Yeah. Um, Even defining who we're trying to serve. Right. Like defining them more than just a customer, but defining yes. them actually as a mission. Yes. Which, you know, at in your heart, it's always what you've talked about, right? It's always the way we have moved forward. Yeah. But because it was never defined, it was so easy to get distracted by opportunity, right? Because once you start putting yourself out there, more opportunities start coming your way. And, you know, which ones do you take? Which ones do you turn down? Yeah. Um, you know, you're building. And so you don't really want to turn any of them down, but they can be a distraction from your core purpose, right? I really like that so. term, that distracted by opportunity, mm -hmm. because that is exactly what I am realizing now mm. after doing, I mean, we've been at work probably for the better part of six weeks, yeah, getting to the place where we can define these cores. Yeah. And now it's, you know, early October, mm -hmm. we have defined our cores and we're still giving ourselves like two-ish weeks. Yeah to test drive them like yes is this our core purpose are these our core values is this mm -hmm. our core you know business need yeah and it's really interesting to me to go to go through that process and i'll be honest with you one of the things that is the most daunting to me is that the the team that we have built mm -hmm. to bring us to this point mm -hmm. and we are a million dollar company now yeah like we're beyond a million dollars in valuation mm -hmm. and we're closing in on a million dollars in current annual revenue. Yeah. We have exceeded a million dollars in lifetime revenue like mm -hmm. months ago. Mm -hmm. There's only 9% of businesses in the entire United States yeah. that 
make more than $1 million in annual revenue. Mm -hmm. Like we are in the top 9% of businesses. Yeah. The thing that makes me sad is that the, the team that got us here mm -hmm. is unlikely to be the team that gets us to the next level. Yeah. The people that we've worked with, the contractors that we've hired, the people that we've hired mm -hmm. who have helped us to build up to 1 million, mm -hmm. they have to choose whether or not they want to continue being part of the team that goes to 3 million, 5 right. million, 50 million, whatever comes down the road, right? Right. And that's scary to me because I care about them. Yeah. And I'm also realizing that I care about my people because I'm still kind of an immature CEO. Mm. Mature CEOs understand you have to separate caring for the people mm -hmm. from caring for the business. Right. And that's been a huge learning point for me is I need to start seeing the business as an asset, mm -hmm. not as like a little child. Right. And there's all this growth in the process. And it's been an, ex an exciting period of growth. And it's been an exciting opportunity for me to grow as a business owner and a business leader. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, it's sad, man. It's, yeah. it's people are going to get fired. People are going to quit. Mm -hmm. Other people are going to get hired. Mm -hmm. And I may never really know their names. Yeah. Like it's kind of wild to think that there's going to be people who work in our company mm -hmm. in the future who I may only cross paths with once or twice a year. Right. And they may never meet the threshold to be like remembered. Right. I, director CIA, well, there was one reason that the director of CIA knew me. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with my skill on the job. <laughs> but the director of CIA doesn't know most of the people that work for him. Yeah. Right. The director of when we worked at, CIA, at uh, CBS Health, the CEO of CBS <laughs> held no idea who we were. Right. Right. So yeah, there's no responsibility on the part of the leader to know the people, mm -hmm. but the people all have a responsibility to know the leader. And it's just, it's really kind of, it's a hard transition for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it really is like watching your children grow, right? I mean, what your kids need when they're five is not what they need when they're 15. And a business is just like that, where when you get to a certain point, your business needs something very different than what it needed to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so when you make all the adjustments that need to be made to grow beyond, you know, the $1 million mark, you know, people, it, it's not going to be the same business that they were originally working in. And maybe they're really excited about that. Like, I'm really excited about all the structure and the professionalization and, you know, that, that gets me going. Um, but, you <laughs> know, um, other people might not like that. Or once you have, you know, further... Uh, narrowed and defined what your core purpose is, maybe, you know, they're not really interested in that anymore. And that's okay, right? Um, because there's, they'll find other opportunities that are better fits for them. And then the company itself will find the people that are right for the company to really take it to that next level and to really serve, you know, whoever it is that they're trying to serve in the best capacity, right? Yeah, you know, what we're talking about really, I think, is the, the challenge of affluence, mm -hmm. right? The challenge of wealth, the challenge of success. And lots yeah. of people, lots of people know this challenge. Mm -hmm. We know what it's like to grow up poor yeah. and then get to the place where you're earning more money than your parents ever made. Mm -hmm. What it's like to go to school with people who, uh, when you check back in with them as an adult, you have wealth, you have assets, yeah. you have status that they still don't have mm -hmm. because they never progressed to the point of success or affluence that you have. Mm -hmm. And when you when you come to realize that 
you as an adult and a success story and a hardworking whatever, business owner, entrepreneur, executive, career-minded individual, mm -hmm. academic, whatever, when you realize that you have left behind the people that you started with, mm -hmm. there's it's sad. It's hard. Yeah. I left behind the people that I went to high school with. I left behind the people I went to college with. I left behind the people that I started the job with. And now mm -hmm. you're affluent. You're successful. You've got responsibilities that they don't have. You have a yes. completely different set of values now. You have a completely different perspective. You have a completely different mindset. Mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the challenges as you grow like that is that like you were saying, you know, the the CEO of CVS has zero idea of who we are, but, you know, on his, whether or not he knows the, all the people doing the work on the bottom, he still has to keep in mind the balance between the happiness and productivity yeah. of those people and the value that they bring to the company. Yeah. And that's a balance that you, you know, even as you get further away from, from the people doing the, the work, um, you know, or doing like the the day to day work, um, you have to keep in mind how to how do you balance you know keeping them with you right with what the business actually needs from them. I think this is going to be an awesome conversation, and I'm super excited because to talk about this with someone who grew up in the world of social work. Oh yeah. And for somebody who grew up very left leaning liberal, I am very excited to kind of get your thoughts on business and growing a business and and employee relations and balancing profit against mm -hmm. uh, against purpose and moral compass right mm -hmm. and and really diving into what it's been like for you to go from a poor liberal household mm -hmm. to an affluent household that that we have brought more center with projections of the kind of affluence that we have in the future yeah. right because we are very much projecting, an incredible amount of wealth for mm -hmm. us and for our family and for our business as we move forward. But yeah. before we jump into that conversation, I want to take just a moment to thank the sponsor for today's episode. Our sponsor today is Aura. Aura is a cybersecurity company for the everyday person. And I'll tell you what right now, that the everyday person might not really feel like cybersecurity is of value to them, but the average affluent person, the average person who has a healthy amount of money in their 401k and their savings account, somebody who understands that their success is tied to their identity and to their digital footprint, that person absolutely understands the importance of having a cybersecurity solution for themselves. For me, I use Aura to protect my data online. I use Aura to protect my identity online. I use Aura so that I can track my information that's floating around on the dark web and so that I can remove and erase my data from anything from the dark web to, to overt, legally viable, data brokers that exist on the internet to keep down the phishing emails that I get to keep away the, the spam phone calls that I get. All of that comes through Aura's services. And another thing that I really value is that because I am always on the go as a dad, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, it's helpful to me that I can access Aura's full suite of tools right from my mobile phone, whether I'm looking for a VPN or whether I'm looking to check on the financial status of one of my credit cards or whether I'm just looking to check my credit records to date, my credit history, my credit reputation, my credit score, I can do it all right there on the app that I carry in my pocket 
with Aura. So if you've been looking for a way to minimize the risks and minimize the dangers that are present for you in your day-to-day -day life as a career-minded executive, as a entrepreneur, as a professional of any variety, go ahead and check out aura.com forward slash everyday spy, where you can sign up for a complimentary two-week trial offer of Aura's full suite of services, only if you are part of the community that's watching this podcast right now. Everyday Spy has partnered with Aura as an official sponsor, and we have been users of Aura for the better part of the last three months. We believe in the product and we use the product, and that's why we are happy to sponsor the product and have them have their support for conversations like this. So if you want to, just click down in the description below. You'll find a link to that free two-week trial offer at aura.com forward slash everyday spy, or you can visit that in your own web browser anywhere you choose, aura.com forward slash everyday spy, and you'll get an opportunity to sign up for your own complimentary two-week trial offer and take Aura for a test drive for yourself so that you can see how much satisfaction and peace of mind comes from really understanding who has your digital data and who doesn't. Now, we are talking about affluence and we're talking about wealth and we're talking about growing both through our business. How does that feel to you? Because from, a, from the time that you were a little girl, your parents always raised you to, to kind of see the world very sacrificially, mm -hmm. very much where like you have to, you almost define your success by your level of poverty. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, I grew up in a very traditional you know, my mom was born in the early 50s. My grandmother was born in the early 30s. Um, a very traditional household of, you know, you work your way up, you check all the boxes, you, you know, do the right thing and you work your way up the ladder and you work for one company, you know, your whole life. And I remember what a big deal it was when like Who Moved My Cheese came out because <laughs> it was so, so applicable to my parents who, you know, were let go from a number of jobs, you know. Um, and so <laughs> it's definitely been a mindset shift for me and a journey for me um, as we became entrepreneurs because it's not something I ever, ever mm. thought I would do. Um, and so I've done, I've read a lot of books. We've had, um, you know, I make sure that I sit in on meetings with you know, other entrepreneurs and other wealthy people, and I take in their ideas and I ask questions um, because the truth is, you know, I grew up with a poverty mindset and everything was from the perspective of if I do the right thing, if I just bide my time, somebody's going to notice me, I will climb up the ladder, this is the process. And I was always um, afraid of, because my parents are this way, afraid of losing, mm. right? I was never confident that every next step I took was going to be successful. And if it wasn't successful, that's okay because there's another opportunity waiting. It was, I'm gonna do this thing, it's gonna work, and if it doesn't work, I'm royally fucked, mm. right? And what am I gonna do? So I'm just gonna be afraid of it and I'm gonna just toe the line. You know, it's really interesting because, you know, your parents, I don't think they intentionally built that mindset into you. No. Because I remember, I know talking to them, they were very focused on kind of having you make none of the mistakes they made. Yes. So they wanted you to go to law school. They wanted you to have a good steady job. They wanted yes. you to invest in your career and your future, mm -hmm. right? That they wanted the best for you all the time. Yeah. And I don't think they realized that in encouraging you down that road, mm. the other thing that they built into your psyche mm -hmm. was this idea that you had to earn someone else's approval. Right. 
in order to be a success. You needed to meet the qualifications to graduate college. You needed to meet the mm -hmm. qualifications to get a law degree. You had to meet the qualifications to get a bar. Right. Right. And all, and then even through that whole process, even while you were going through all of these loops and, and let's be honest, you graduated high school at 16. Yeah. I mean, my love, <laughs> you're kind of freakishly smart. <laughs> it's very sexy to me, <laughs> but so you're kind of weird. <laughs> You graduated high school at 16. You had your first undergrad degree by 19? No, I 16 and then uh, the summer I turned 21. So yeah, you, so I graduated when I was 20. Yeah. You graduated college when you were 20. Yeah. And you had a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And then you went on to get two master's degrees. Yeah. And you had all of this education done before I even met you at CIA mm -hmm. when you were 27 years old. So mm -hmm. somehow between between high school and 27, mm -hmm. you had accumulated four degrees, including a law degree. Mm -hmm. My love, I barely had an undergraduate degree <laughs> yeah. by the time I was 27 years old. Yeah, but what's interesting about you is that for me, the idea of trying and failing was not supported. Mm -hmm. There was no try something and if you feel it's okay, just try something again. Um, it was- Don't try anything that it it, it was, this is the path, you do these things mm. and you will succeed, mm. right? Um, where for you, I feel like you started on, this is the path, do these things, you will succeed. But very quickly you were like, this isn't right. <laughs> So you already had this, this, I mean, I think by the time you were 19, you were like, this is a bunch of bull, what yeah. people are being fed. And well, at I'm least just, what I was being fed. And I'm just going to forge my own path. And I'm, you know, you were at the, at the Air Force Academy already. So you had to kind of follow that route, but you were like, I'm going to, I'm going to make the most of it while I'm in it. And then I'm going to learn my lessons. And then when I get out, I'm going to try what I want to try. Yeah. And if I fail, that's okay because there's always another opportunity for me. And, and I, that took me until like last year to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only after reading like five books you recommended and like, you know, talking to a coach and whatever. That's, yeah, I, I do feel lucky that I did kind of, I, I adapted to the fear of failure because mm -hmm. it's, it's still scary, Yeah. but I adapted that fear fairly early on. And I'm not the only one. There's a lot of folks out there who are not afraid to fail. And I love meeting those people and I love talking to those people. And the only thing that ever makes me sad about those folks mm -hmm. is when they're somehow convinced that they're wrong. Yeah. Because the whole world tries to convince them, their parents, their spouse, mm -hmm. their employer, right? Even like the freaking, the system, mm -hmm. the system of economics in the United States tries to convince you that if you are willing to take risks and fail, you're not healthy. There's something wrong with you where that's just not true. Our whole country was built on the backs of people mm -hmm. who were willing to take risks and fail. Think about the first crazy sons of bitches who <laughs> crossed the ocean to come here. I know. That, holy shit. Yeah. That was like, how crazy, how desperate, mm -hmm. how risk tolerant must you have been mm -hmm. to get on a ship with your family? Yeah and cross in a wooden boat with sails across the ocean <laughs> yeah. to come here yeah. to an unknown place. Completely unknown. Undeveloped with yeah. no infrastructure. And then like, you're gonna get off the boat and guess what you're gonna do? Freaking hour one, mm -hmm. get your ass to work. 
Yeah. Building shelter, planting a farm. Holy smokes, dude. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. But what's what I have always felt that I find interesting too is we need we need the people who want to toe the line, right? The country, yes, the country was built mm. and new innovation is built on the backs of people who have these big ideas, who aren't afraid to fail. Crazy sons of bitches. Crazy sons of bitches. But those crazy sons of bitches need people yeah. who are very practical and very level-headed yeah. and they want to learn that thing that you want to do and do a good job and just do that job. And that's totally okay and we actually need them, right? So for every CEO out there, for every business owner, they have to have people under them who want to do the job every day, right? Yeah. And then they have to consider what do those people need to be able to continue to do that job well. So right away, my my brain goes to the fact that at the peak of September, mm -hmm. just a month ago, mm -hmm. at the peak of September, almost 200,000 Americans were on strike. Isn't that incredible? 200,000 Americans were yep. on strike. And why? And why? And and you know what's interesting is, you know, you and I have, we have multiple media projects, mm -hmm. uh, television, film, book, our own business and is in many ways mm -hmm. a publishing business. So we have been impacted by the strike that was happening mm -hmm. by the Writers Guild yeah. in LA. Mm-hmm. So the writers were on strike. I think that they just lifted that strike at the beginning of October, but they had been on strike for I think four months or six months. Yeah, it was a, it was long, a long time. time, much longer than any strike in the past. Mm -hmm. So most Americans are aware that there was this giant strike that was affecting streaming television. Mm -hmm. What people don't realize is that the Screen Actors Guild is also on strike. I think they might still be on strike. I don't know if that one's I been don't lifted. Know if they've settled yet? Yeah. And then on top of that. Like there's the threat of strikes mm -hmm. coming from uh, union auto workers. Well, there, yeah, there are strikes and threats of more strikes. Exactly. Yeah. But then like there are strikes that people don't even realize. Like Starbucks employees mm -hmm. within certain states went on strike. Amazon warehouse employees within certain states mm -hmm. have been on strike. Hotel uh, cleaning staff have been mm -hmm. on strike. Like there, yeah. there are all these strikes happening. The healthcare workers. The healthcare yeah. workers right now at Kaiser Permanente are on strike. Mm -hmm. There are like hundreds of thousands of Americans on strike. Mm -hmm. And I think what blows my mind is a couple things. So first, as I, when I start reading about that, the idea of, uh, of group negotiation, mm -hmm. right? There's a term for that. What, what, the, what do the unions call that? Collective bargaining. Mm. The idea of collective bargaining mm -hmm. is a challenging idea, especially in 2023 for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that when I started doing research into it, there's only 6% of professionals, like privatized professionals, mm -hmm. who are unionized. That's interesting. 6%. That's much smaller than I would have It's expected. a tiny amount, yeah. right? So of all the private employees, private means not public. So we're mm -hmm. not talking about school teachers or state yeah, government employees. Government employees, yeah. Right? We're talking about private citizens who, yeah. who work in companies. Only 6% hmm. are unionized at all. Yeah. And yet we are seeing that inside that 6%, they have the ability to make massive impact, right? Yeah. Like whether it's... Amazon or Starbucks or uh, the entire 
you know, scripted world in Hollywood, mm -hmm. they've been brought to their knees essentially right. because of union strikes. Right, which is the whole point of a union. <laughs> What's the why question that comes up for me is that companies who hire workers who belong to a union take on a known risk, mm. right? The whole point of a union is for this collective bargaining power, right? So when you hire them, you know that this is a risk for your company that if they are unhappy, they can strike and then they are negotiating something from you. So why do the strikes ever happen mm. is my question, right? What there is, there is a tipping point obviously that happens where people are like, you're really just not doing right by us, so we're going to strike. So why does the, how does the company you know, miss the assessment or they're making the assessment and they're just kind of letting it get to that tipping point where they're like, you know what, we can handle a strike yeah. and we'll just see how how far we can get. Like what's happening there is is the why that I want to know. Yeah, and what's interesting to me now that like we started this conversation talking about our own business growth. Right. And as we continue to hire people in the future, we actually have to consider what states are we hiring in? Yeah. What industries are we hiring from? Like, mm -hmm. are we going to run into this union question ourselves? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's it's made me ask myself some hard questions. And I think that you're going to be surprised when I tell you some of my conclusions. So first, I think it's important to note that not all strikes are successful. Right. For example, the Starbucks employees who are striking, mm -hmm. I'm almost certain that corporate Starbucks mm -hmm. has told them to piss off. Yeah. That they're like, we're not coming to work. And Starbucks corporate is like, okay, then you're not getting paid. Right. Because it's only in a few states where they even have the ability to strike. Mm -hmm. And the only reason Starbucks went into those states mm -hmm. was because they wanted to have a certain market saturation. Right. So now that those employees in those states are, are striking, mm -hmm. Starbucks is like, well, you know what? We're diversified. Yeah. We've got coffee on the shelves at convenience stores. We've got yeah. coffee that people can order. We've got coffee in 49 other states that are doing fine. Mm -hmm. So you don't want a job, you go figure it out, mm -hmm. right? And oh, by the way, don't call us to be your reference for your next job. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because sometimes the collective bargaining power Backfires. isn't really yeah. bargaining power at all. Right. But then on the other side, you do have situations like what we have in in Hollywood with the, mm -hmm. with the screenwriters, right? Yeah. Or with the writers guilds. Because now they have successfully collectively bargained mm -hmm. increased wages mm -hmm. and protection and you know long-term revenue for the things that they create. They've mm -hmm. stifled the use of AI and controlled the use of AI. Mm -hmm. So there's some benefits there that they've been able to use collectively bargaining. Mm -hmm. um, and arguably, the industry as a whole will benefit from it, arguably. But what I landed on that's interesting to me is I would have never thought that I would have said that unions are a good thing. But I think now that I think about unions as a business owner, mm -hmm. I think they are a good thing. <laughs> and the reason they're a good thing is not, I think, what you think. Uh-huh. I'm so interested to hear. I think unions are a good thing because unions ensure that single-skilled or unskilled workers and I know that's going to piss people off when I call them single or unskilled. Unions ensure that single skilled or unskilled workers make the most money they can possibly make. Mm -hmm. Which means the tax base for the United States mm. is always growing. 
because that tax base is those skilled workers. The federal government knows that the business owners who make millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. have are using and, and stashing their income into securities and savings accounts and investment accounts mm-hmm. where they'll get taxed at circa 12, 12%, 14% overall. Mm-hmm. And it'll be a long-term tax. Mm-hmm. So for a, a millionaire, they might only pay 12 cents on the dollar in taxes. And they may not pay that until 15 or 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. Whereas your average automotive worker who makes $110,000 right now because they're a trade technician in an automotive factory, mm-hmm. that person will pay 19% tax hmm. right now. Yeah. So anything the federal government can do to maximize the amount of money that man makes or that woman makes means that the federal government will tax them at the maximum amount every single year. Whereas if it was left to the business owner, that person would make less money, mm-hmm. so they might pay less taxes. So I think that the reason unions are a good thing, and my opinion, the reason that that Biden is such a strong supporter of unions is because he understands this from his long term in office. That's really interesting. Because if you think about it, when Biden started as a politician, and the reason I'm bringing up Biden is because everybody knows he's Mm pro-union. Biden started as a politician in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Guess how much of the private population, the private uh, career uh, population, guess how many people were unionized in 1970? Was it more or less than now? 30%. Yeah, it was more, right? I think 30%. Yeah, unions have been in decline, but 30% of the population was unionized in 1970. So whenever 30% of the population got a 5% pay increase. Yeah. The benefits for the US tax base for the federal government to tax all of these people. Yeah. Right? They got more money faster at a higher rate and they yeah. did it by penalizing the CEOs, not the people. So then unions started driving this engine yeah. where they claim to be helping the people and arguably they are helping the people. Right. Yeah. Except for the fact that when unions unionize and people get paid more, the cost of goods goes up. Mm. So now every car that you buy is more expensive because the union workers are making more money and everybody's paying more taxes on both the car and the union. So mm. the federal government makes out with more money because they're the only, the federal government is the only government, is the only entity in this mm-hmm. that can't generate their own revenue. The only way they make mm. more money is by making more money from taxes. What an interesting perspective I'd never considered before. Yeah. I had always viewed unions as, as a very much, you know, they're good for the workers so long as you have somebody intelligent at the helm negotiating because a union can tank a company, right? We've all heard the stories um, when you don't have intelligent negotiations happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that is a fascinating perspective that I have never heard before. Because yeah. when I am I'm, I'm being frank, as a business owner in the future, what I want to hire Mm-hmm. I want to hire people who produce at the highest levels, yeah. who I can pay at the lowest reasonable levels hmm. so that I can incentivize them with a bonus structure yeah. to overperform. So then mm-hmm. if I have 100 employees, mm-hmm. I pay a minimal amount for all 100, mm-hmm. but for the highest performing 50, I pay them enough or more than enough so that they in- they're incentivized to stay. Right. Where the lowest performing 50 are incentivized to leave Mm -hmm. because I don't want them. What I want is a team full of high performers, even if everybody who's a high performer makes a big bonus. Mm -hmm. Remember when we were with CVS Health, Mm -hmm. they gave us a bonus structure. Yeah. We didn't even think about leaving CVS Health. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. until their bonus structure stopped delivering. Yeah. Because we were working our butts off. Yeah. And then one year we made a $4,000 annual bonus, which isn't much. Now, mm-hmm. that I, now that I'm a business owner, I realize how that's not much. Mm-hmm. We had a $4,000 bonus one year and a $2,000 bonus the next year, even though we worked hard and overachieved our goals. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was like, I am not doing this for a living. Like, yeah. this is some bullshit. Yeah. And the company was like, oh, we're growing and this and that and the other thing. So you're going to see it in your bonus. No, that's not how it works for me. So now as a business owner, I'm like, you know what? If my people want to unionize so that everybody makes more money, Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with that because I'm understanding that I'm still only paying taxes on my income. Mm -hmm. And the way that I, as an affluent, wealthy person, am dispersing my income Mm -hmm. is through tax incentivized vehicles because I'm saving my money. I'm investing my money. All the things that the that the federal economy wants me to do as a wealthy person. It wants me to buy stocks and bonds and invest and grow my business. Mm -hmm. So I'm incentivized by getting less tax burden. Mm -hmm. But the average cog, you were saying, like the people who just do the work, Mm -hmm. we need those people. We need cogs, right? We need people who are happy to do their job. The federal government needs them too because they're just going to sign off and pay whatever taxes rate they have to pay Mm -hmm. because they are literally not thinking of the future. They are only thinking of the next paycheck. Right. Well, I mean, that is the future they're thinking of. Right. Right. And we need that. (laughs) We we do. We need that. And what I'm saying is I didn't even realize we need it for more than one reason. Right. We don't just need it because we're business owners. We need it because our federal budget, the way that presidents can promise not to raise taxes Mm -hmm. or the way that presidents can secretly raise taxes Mm -hmm. without people realizing it's being raised is when they keep the tax levels the same, Mm -hmm. but they increase the payment to people. Right. Because now, instead of making 12 cents on the dollar for everybody who's working because Mm -hmm. they make less than $60,000 a year, once they make $65,000 a year, Mm -hmm. you can tax them all for 14 cents on every dollar. And when you're talking about 100 million people paying two cents extra every single paycheck, mm-hmm. that becomes significant. Right. So that's that's what I'm realizing. That's the engine that grows our economic base. And I can support that. Yeah. So, yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so all that to say, I'm shocked to say that I support unions. 